Hey everyone, it's Pacific. Earlier this week, we teamed up with the Rooster Teeth Aviation Disaster Podcast, Black Box Down. After joining us on our episode about Gremlins, Nicole sat down with Gus and Chris to talk about her favorite plane crashes in films and TV shows. So what you're about to hear is an episode from Black Box Down, uh, and of course, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to go check out Black Box Down wherever you listen to podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else. Enjoy! This is a Rooster Teeth production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special supplementary episode of Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. But since it's a special supplementary episode, we're supplementing our cast with a special guest. <laughs> is, is, that, is that appropriate? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, good, good. We have uh, Nicole Goodnight with us here. Hello, Nicole. Hello. How are you? Great. And uh, Nicole just launched a new podcast here very recently called Insidious Inspirations. It explores the real life inspirations behind movie and other media, which uh, sounds very spooky to me. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of like from a true crime perspective, right? Yeah, exactly. This is a really fortuitous crossover because uh, we're doing one of our bonus episodes where we talk about scenes from movies and TV that uh, feature planes and plane incidents and talk about what they got wrong. Yeah. Or maybe, <laughs> or also what, maybe what they got right. You know, That's, so, so, sometimes they get things right. Lots of times things are wrong, but yeah. <laughs> so we definitely do tend to focus on that. Me and Gus are also guests on Insidious Inspiration. And we have a, a, a special episode where we help do the voiceover for it. And yeah. it's talking about Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is a famous uh, Twilight Zone episode. Yeah, that one's got William Shatner in it. It's maybe one of the most famous Twilight Zone episodes. And I've got a confession to make to you guys. I don't like that episode because William Shatner blocked me on Twitter. So I've got like, a, I've got like, I've got beef apparently. So I, I can't, I can't enjoy the work anymore. I used to like it when I was younger Then he blocked me and now I'm just grumpy about it. Yeah. Well, see, I don't have that problem. <laughs> well, first of all, how dare he, but yeah, can't, can't relate. <laughs> so in order to get around my, uh, my William Shatner problem, my William Shatner blocking, you're going to be talking about the Twilight Zone movie yeah correct chris yeah yeah because they made a, a 19 uh i believe it was 1987 film 1983 which, 1983 thank you gus they did a bunch of like little mini stories uh featuring twilight and that was one they kind of remade from what i read they wanted william shatner but he couldn't make it because of uh schedule problems so they got john lithgow to uh play the role that he played in the tv show and let me tell you john lithgow sells it oh yeah he's good he yeah, he is swinging for the fences in that role yeah so uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, it's a guy who's terrified of flights, and then he's looking out the window, and then there's a gremlin outside the plane who's uh, tearing apart the plane, and he's freaking out, but no one else sees it, and it continues to get worse. The plane gets, he goes crazy. He starts trying to scream, and they're having to withhold him. Uh, he attack, fights the gremlin off, and then it's a big confrontation. It's fun. In the movie, I didn't realize it until, I, you know, I saw this movie when I was much younger. I didn't realize it until rewatching it for this that George Miller directed that segment for the Twilight Zone movie. Yeah, the Twilight Zone movie, there's a lot of good directors in it. Yeah. Steven Spielberg directed one of them. So I kind of made notes while I was watching it. I don't know if you did, Gus, but. Oh, you know me. I yeah. love notes. Well, one thing I just thought was fun is the pilot said he's trying to avoid some uh-ohs and whoopsie daisies. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that made my notes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, that's like right at the beginning when John Lithgow's locked himself in the uh, in the bathroom. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I want to point out the bathroom door wasn't locked. Uh, I don't oh, know if it you wasn't? caught that. I did it not. It was not catch locked. Uh, so he was in the bathroom, and the flight attendants are knocking on the door. The door lock is not engaged. You can see it from the inside from John Lithgow's perspective. Well, then in modern planes, wouldn't the light be off? <laughs> yeah, it, it, there, there, <laughs> that is true. Uh, so speaking of which, I tried to figure out what kind of plane this was. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, you don't get to see very much of the exterior, but you can tell it's four engine plane. You mm-hmm. know, this is, you know, 1983 we were talking about. I think this is a Boeing 707. Uh-huh. Just based on the fact that it's got four engines and the way that the windows looked. The windows on the 707 always seem kind of squared to me. You know, on planes, the windows are always round. Mm-hmm. But I, the 707 kind of freaks me out because it's like a little too square. <laughs> and the, the last flight of a Boeing 707 with passengers actually took place. It was a TWA flight. I looked it up. It was October 30th, 1983. And that's why I knew this movie came out in 1983 because it was the same year the 707 oh. stopped carrying passengers. So timeline-wise, it makes sense that they were probably in a Boeing 707. Okay. One thing I thought that did not add up is in the first scene with John Lithgow when he's locked himself in the bathroom, he's drinking water. He, he takes, I think, some medication or something from a little paper cup that's in yeah. the little bathroom. They don't have potable water in bathroom planes. Yeah, you're really not supposed to drink that water. <laughs> and they definitely wouldn't have little paper cups for you to drink out of. Believe it or not, I think I've seen paper cups. I've seen, I've at least seen the holder, like where you used to be able to do that. Oh. I don't know if it still has the, you know, if, if it's still there. Maybe they intend for you to rinse your mouth out or, but not yeah. drink it. I don't, yeah, I, don't, I wouldn't do that. Don't do that. Nicole, yeah. I don't know if you've ever done that. Don't I do that. I would never do that. <laughs> yeah. It's not necessarily that the water is bad. It, the problem is that there's really no way for them to clean those tanks on a plane, like Ooh. where they hold the water. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah. So it's like, and sometimes these planes are really old. So the water might look clean, but you don't know what the inside of the tank looks like. So oh. don't ever drink any coffee that's brewed on a plane. <laughs> don't drink, <gasps> don't get the hot water for a tea and don't drink the water oh. uh, out of a bathroom. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Little oh, little no. travel pro tip for you. You don't know what that water necessarily was like. Ooh. Explains why the coffee's never good. <laughs> True. I noticed another thing that was weird. Or not What's weird. That? This is just something that stuck out to me. At one point when he goes back to his seat, he like is freaking out. He's trying to distract himself. And he like looks at the newspaper and the headline is Aviation Disaster Worst Ever, 437 Dead. This movie Correct. came out 1983. But that was six years after the Tenerife disaster, which killed 583 people. And there were no. So like technically, it, assuming that that movie came out around the, like within those six years, there was there, that's that wouldn't have been the worst aviation disaster. Correct. And I went a step further, Chris. Oh. I looked up what would have been the second worst disaster up to that point, which would have been Turkish Airlines 981 in 1974, in which 346 people were dead. So it wouldn't have been the worst and it wouldn't have been. It would, it would have been the second worst easily. I wanted to see where it would have fit timeline-wise in there. I definitely noticed that. He's also, I don't even remember, he's trying to distract himself. Yeah. When he's like walking out of the bathroom back to his seat and he's trying to rationalize. And he says, 426,504,000 people fly each year. The population of the country. The population of the United States is still not 426 million people. I don't know what country he's talking about. <laughs> Also, I had to look it up. In 1983, 685 million passengers flew globally. So that number's not even right to begin with. Well, I guess you could chalk that up to him. He was delirious. I don't know. Could be. Yeah, but 
to say 426 million people, the population of the country, like it may be at, at uh, what was this, 1983, it might have been 270 million. Mm. So he's almost inflating it by double. Yeah. So I had to look it up. And globally in 2019, I, I looked up the pre-COVID numbers because obviously COVID changed it quite a bit. In 2019, 4.5 billion passengers flew globally. Wow. Just to put it in this, to see to see oh, that wow. growth. In 1983, it was 685 million. In 2019, it was 4.5 billion. Wow. So it's like almost an eight-fold increase in passengers. Uh, what is that? In 40 years, roughly? No, 36 years. Yeah, 36 years. I don't know if you guys have ever had gremlins on a plane but uh <laughs> so th- the first time he sees a gremlin it's like he looks out it's like a they're stormy weather look out the window and then he like double takes because there's like it looks like a, it, it's actually it's pretty cool like because it's all like little puppets and stuff it's like that n- 1980s puppetry yeah and there's like a gremlin like riding the plane yeah like, <laughs> he's like it looks like he's like I don't know got the one hand like a bull rider yeah it made me think of like uh the end of Dr. Strangelove when he's riding the atomic bomb down, he's like oh. waving his cowboy hat in the air. Yeehaw! Uh, but then the plane gets struck by lightning, right? Well, the, yeah. the gremlin gets struck by lightning. And then thus the plane also gets struck by lightning. And that causes the, the engine to, to like blow out. Yes. But lightning wouldn't do that. Right. I mean, correct. You'd, you, you never if, if you're a nervous flyer, you never have to worry about lightning striking a plane and causing damage they're designed to take lightning hits i've been on a plane i've i've sat next to a window and had lightning hit one row up from me on a flight before you do not have to worry it happens all the time yeah the only variable in this is we aren't taking into consideration the gremlin factor we don't know how conductive they are the g factor yeah 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 (laughs) and like what a gremlin might do in that situation you know because you don't know how Maybe it gave stuff. it like super strength or something. Exactly. Yeah. The lightning true. gremlin, which they do. We do know lightning gremlins exist if you've, if you've seen gremlins too. <laughs> nice. Nice. By the way, you know, you mentioned that he's looking out the window over the wing. You know, you can see the engine. Have you ever been on a plane where 4A is over the wing? Because they say he's in seat 4A. Oh, yeah. That doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense That'd at be like all. At the front of the plane. Right. He would presumably be in first class. If he's sitting in 4A, which means it's also weird that he's sitting in a row with three seats. First class typically has two seats oh. in a row. Obviously, I don't, I've never flown on a 707. Those were retired well before I started flying. I was still a little kid at the time. But uh, it just seemed weird to me that there were three seats in a row in first class. Yeah. Also, later in the, you know, I say, like, they mentioned that he's in seat 4A. Later on, the flight attendant comments to someone else. Well, I think she's talking to the first officer. She says... The man in 3F is freaking out. So oh. they, they can't even keep the seat straight where he's sitting. And 3F would be on the other side of the plane from where he's actually sitting. So just a little, a weird little goof there, considering everything else that they had going on. Yeah, that seems like a pretty easy thing that like script supervisors should keep track of that. Right. Like the, the, the script supervisor should absolutely be on top of that. Is anyone going to mention the fact that John Lithgow's nervous and just decides to light up a cigarette on this flight? Well, they do call it out. The little kid does, yeah. Yeah, the little kid's like, no, smoking. And then she spelled it out, like, really <laughs> creepy. Yeah, and she has a creepy doll. She really does. The doll doesn't do anything. Like, the doll's just there to be creepy, and I was really creeped out by it. Yeah. The doll's arguably as creepy as the gremlin is. <laughs> I-, I thought the doll was creepier on a base <laughs> level, but the doll didn't have any jump scares. That's true. This is true. There was a good gremlin jump scare. 
for I sure. I think the thing with the gremlin is I expected it when I, you know, when I heard about the episode and went to go watch it, I expected the gremlin to be not as scary as it was. So I was uh-huh. pleasantly frightened by the gremlin. I think it's because, you know, like gremlins, the, the, the movies, one and two, they aren't that scary. Yeah. They're more like mis- mischievous. And this was yeah. like, he was like, he would, he would mess you up. You don't want to <laughs> fight this gremlin. He eats a gun. He does eat the gun. <laughs> he does. Yeah. You, you mean the gun brought on board by FAA security? Yeah. Yeah. I saw that was another thing. At first, at first, I thought he was like, "Wait, that's just some random security guard. He has a gun." They didn't allow that. No, and FAA security, like that, that, that's almost like a precursor to an air marshal. I had to look that up. That wasn't a thing. Yeah, I didn't know what the, I was like. FAA security. As far I, I say, as far as I know, I looked into it a little bit. I couldn't find any evidence of like. The FAA sending armed people on planes in the 80s for some reason. Yeah. Or even if he was just a passenger, they wouldn't have let him on with a gun. Right. Well, he has a badge, right? He pulls out his FAA. Yeah. His wallet. He's like, I'm an FAA security. (laughs) That was really weird. Also, as a testament to what a different time the 80s were, the flight attendants like offering drugs to John Lithgow. (laughs) It's like, I'm not supposed to do this, but uh, you want some pills? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's. But she did say she wasn't supposed to. Yeah, but she's still doing it. She's got like a little tin full of like downers. She's like, what? <laughs> you want something for the flight? <laughs> also, was it one of pilots helped restrain him whenever John Lithgow started freaking out? Yeah, it was the first officer. They, I, I was actually pleasantly surprised that they got that right because he introduces himself as a first officer and his jacket only has three stripes on the, on the sleeve. Oh. First officers only have three stripes. A captain would have four. Would they leave the cabin like that? Probably not. I think the weirder thing was he was there instantly. Like yeah. the second John Lithgow started freaking out, he was uh-huh. on, like he was the first one. <laughs> like he came out of the cockpit ahead of everyone else and like tackled him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, they would they would definitely uh, leave that to the 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 cabin crew, like the the flight attendants and the passengers yeah. to deal with. Oh, I, I just to circle back real fast. I'm sorry, uh-huh. I forgot to mention. I was going to follow up on the smoking thing. I figured in 1983, smoking was still allowed on the plane. So I had to look up exactly the years that smoking was was banned on flights. And I guess that the Congress in the United States, Congress finally took action in 1987. So starting in 1988, in the United States, domestic flights less than two hours, you couldn't smoke. And then they extended that in February 1990 to flights less than six hours. And it wasn't until the year 2000 that it was banned on all domestic and international flights. Okay. Which is not that long ago. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. That, I think we talked about that before. It's later than it seems. Yeah. It seems like it should have been done earlier. Yeah. Also, I thought it was weird when John Lithgow shoots the window. It makes like a glass shattering noise. When those windows should not be made out of glass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like you, like they, I'm sure they fully the sound in, but it was definitely like glass breaking. And that was that, that didn't seem like the appropriate choice. I guess it's better than just like a plasticky bending sound. <laughs> yeah. He keeps trying to like see this gremlin and eventually when the gremlin like jump scares in his face, he like grabs the gun from the FAA security card. Yeah. Uh, and then shoots, tries to shoot the gremlin and then gets sucked out of the plane. Yeah. Which that's happened before. Yeah. We, we did an episode about people sucked out of planes. <laughs> so that, that, that added up. I was going to comment that maybe he would have passed out from hypoxia, but it seems like actually they were pretty low. Like they were getting ready to land by the time that. He, yeah. uh, he's, he's out of the plane. Also, the overhead baggage compartments, they start popping open and just like pouring out like crazy. Like they're designed not to do that, right? Yeah, I, I think 
movies and TV shows love having that happen because it looks so like dramatic on uh-huh. on camera. But I've I've been in really bad turbulence and I've never seen those those doors open. And that's not to say they they do open sometimes. If it's if it gets to like extreme really terrible turbulence, they can pop open. But it would have to be a lot to pop them mm. open. In this movie, it like they were like. Oh, turbulence! Bow, and they just like start like confetti yeah. luggage. Yeah, the gremlin, yeah, he starts. He's like tearing the in, the plane apart, which you know that adds up as far as gremlin. <laughs> it adds up as far to be as far as classic far as, gremlin. Yeah, he he was biting guns. This is a gremlin that could bite guns. So. Yeah. So the biggest, most egregious problem uh-huh. out of this entire segment happens once they're on the ground. Once they're on the ground, you know, they're taking, everyone's getting off the plane. Uh-huh. The maintenance crew comes up and they're like, all right. One of the guys like, he, he comes up close to camera and says, I want to know if there's any fuel leaking out of this baby. Then puts a lit cigar in his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what is this? That, what's happening here? <laughs> like oh. they make it a point to show it. <laughs> wow. I didn't notice that. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, dude. <laughs> Not that, you know. Jet fuel's not explosive, but uh-huh. it's still flammable. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was that was my only other only other note for uh, the Twilight Zone segment. You know what's crazy though is that movie features like a real life aviation disaster. It does. It really does. Yeah. When they were filming, not that segment, another segment, there was a a helicopter stunt that went poorly and it killed like an actor and two children. Yeah, it was the segment that John Landis directed. Um, yeah, there was a, a terrible accident. Yeah, which is just, it's it's weird. Like, I, I forgot that that had happened. And then whenever I was like watching, I was like, oh, wait, is this the one where that? Yeah, which was really sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, you mentioned Steven Spielberg earlier. I think that it caused like a huge rift between Steven Spielberg and John Landis, um, like where they were no longer friends anymore as a result of that. Like Steven Spielberg was so upset about the accident. Yeah, I could see something like that. Again, I didn't research that very much. I didn't think we were mm-hmm. going to talk about it. But yeah, I mean, that's, it's awful. It's awful yeah. how, uh, how that happened. That's all I had for Gremlins, Twilight Zone. <laughs> I, I just got to say it one more time. John Lithgow killed it. I mean, in that role, I, yeah. like, I, re- I really bought it. He looked, he looked terrible, which <laughs> sounds like an insult, but it was really good. Like, I mean, like, he, I, I could, I felt like the fear coming from him. Yeah. Nicole, you had, you, you sent, uh, Yellow Jackets, which yeah. I'd never even heard of. Ooh, it's very good. So Chris and I have a mutual friend uh, named Brandon, and Brandon's really into Yellow Jackets. He's been trying to get me to watch it, and he's been using <laughs> the plane crash angle to try to get me interested <laughs> in it. So I'm actually really glad that you brought it up, uh, Nicole. Uh, it gave me an excuse to watch it and uh, I'd start trying to get into it. So the, the show follows a group of, it's a soccer team, and they're on their way to, you know, a... I want to say it's the nationals and on their way their plane crashes which is you know where we're tying in here it has a lot of actual similarities to uh fairchild f227 in you know the the premise and and what's going on mm-hmm. with it but it it kind of just follows them throughout what happens after the crash and the crash itself the scene is is very intense um it spans over episode one and two and both the scene in episode one and the aftermath in episode two were just wild to watch for, you know, as someone who maybe doesn't know as much about crashes because it seemed, well, a lot of it, <laughs> most of it seemed very realistic. I'm um, not that I've ever, you know, been in a 
plane crash, but um, <laughs> none of it really seemed over the top or, or you know, embellished yeah. a lot. But, you know, that's why we're here today. <laughs> and I want to clarify real fast uh, when Nicole's talking about uh, when she says Fairchild F-227, she's talking about the Uruguayan Air Force flight where the rugby team crashed into a mountain and survived. That's what the movie Alive was based on. And so yeah. there's a lot of similarities between that and this crash here in uh, in Yellow Jackets. Yep. So in Yellow Jackets, the uh, the pilots choose to fly further over north, over the Canadian border. So they're kind of veering off path because of a storm. Mm. And, you know, that that was their, their downfall, as it were. So I watched the plane crash stuff. I want to list a few things. You tell me if I'm right or wrong, right? Can I do that? Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. You're the boss. <laughs> I'm not, but <laughs> you can be right now. <laughs> okay. So the girls passed out at the beginning. The main woman, the one we we're following, kind of through her eyes. She was passed out from lack of oxygen, which that made sense, right? Because it was, I could figure out what plane it was on, but it, it looked, yeah, it looked, it was based off of Fairchild F27, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I couldn't find the plane either. All we know about it is that it's a, it's a private, private airliner. Yeah. That cruising altitude was about 4,000 above where you would need oxygen. I think it was like 27,000 or 30. Most airplanes are pressurized to about 8,000 feet. You would definitely need oxygen, typically about twelve to 15,000 uh, feet is when you uh, would really start to feel it. And so like her passing out and then waking up with an oxygen mask makes sense. I don't know how the person next to her got an oxygen mask on but because they were also passed out. Well, the thing I was weirded out a little about in that scene was that it didn't seem like they were too high by the time that the mask got put on her yeah it seemed like they were already like about to land or land crash (laughs) and then she was just now getting the mask it seemed like it it would the oxygen mask would have popped down and then been put on sooner i don't know Mm -hmm. and i think she was partially why she was passed out um was i want to say that the person sitting next to her uh, before the flight had started, had given her something kind of to ease right. the anxiety. Mm. So that might have played into it too. I think that's probably more than uh, more than altitude. That probably played into it because if you like pass out from lack of oxygen at altitude and if you don't get oxygen within like a couple of minutes, normally you suffer brain damage or you die. Oh, yeah. Because it's like, it's like you're not getting the oxygen. You know, it's like it's the same as not breathing. Yeah. When the plane was going down, the pilots were doing checklists. Mm-hmm. Which that made sense. And then they were dumping fuel, which that would make sense, right, Gus? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> they, they, some of the stuff they were talking about, they were talking about deploying their speed brakes and dumping fuel. I don't know why they would be doing those things at this point. Like if they're crashing, like I guess maybe if they're resigned to the crash, like if they're putting their speed brakes out to try to slow, slow. down uh, and dumping fuel to avoid a post crash yeah. fire. But you know, they're not going to be able to dump a sufficient, a very big amount of fuel that quickly. It's not like a ton dumps out right away. It's like it's a slow process. Yeah. So it just seemed weird that that's the things that they decided to do. Well, that is it, it weird, too, because at that point, well, I mean, when it cut to them, they were like at the tree line. They were like a yeah. second away. But it could have been one of those things where they were like moved, you know, like the foreground blue screen or green screen was replaced later on. So, so it made yeah. more, you know, it was more dramatic. Because it, they wouldn't be dumping fuel right whenever they're like hitting a tree, right? It's like no, you're <laughs> it's, you're you're pretty. You know you're going down. There's no point in dumping fuel at that point. You're only going to dump a couple hundred pounds, if that. And then this is on I think the next episode. There's a big thing where they were trying to kick the doors open. Yeah, but the emergency doors would open inward, 
right? The emergency door. Most of the time, yes. There are some weird exceptions where the doors do open outward. Yeah, I know we talked about a couple of them, but if this was based off of Fairchild F27, I looked and that one does have doors going in. Oh, look at you. Uh, I think the the Fairchild F27, if I remember right, though, is a propeller plane. This one I'm going to say is probably a jet engine just because you can hear like the, mm. the engine surging when uh, they're going through their crash. It didn't sound like a prop to me. So okay. it's probably not the F-27, but it's it's going to be something similar. Okay. Well, yeah. And that was the thing. It's like more than likely the doors would open inward. Not They wouldn't be because they were like the whole thing is they couldn't get the door open to get out before, and there was a fire. Yeah. Well, the thing I was wondering is normally, uh-huh. you know, when you're in an exit row, there's doors on both sides of the plane. Like if the door on one side is stuck, you just go across the oh, aisle yeah. to the other side and go to the other door. So in my mind, when they were kicking that door, I thought, oh, they're going to get outside and we're going to see that it's like on a cliff or they couldn't go out that side. But when they get out, it's like, oh, no, it's just ground on that side, too. Like I, <laughs> they should have just gone to the other side of the plane and tried to open that door, too. Yeah, I didn't realize they were just right on ground until they popped out. Yeah. yeah and the other thing that kind of struck me as odd about that, and this is something I noted down, is um, one of the characters was apparently sucked out of, an, I want to say it was an open door, mid-flight. So where was that door? Because that was a big, a yeah. big thing. You know, he was complaining or the child was complaining that, you know, he helped people put on their their masks and as a result was sucked out of the plane you know, and paled on a tree. Somehow yeah, still alive. It, I, <laughs> it, yeah, it could be one of the ones like in the back or like another one in the very front. But yeah, you're right. Like if this is the one that they focused on, where were these? Other, where was the other one? Or where yeah, because it was it was fairly small plane, I want to say. And the people that he was helping were pretty pretty close to the front if i recall correctly yeah it's 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 definitely a question i i feel like they intentionally do not show very much of the plane yeah to try to kind of mask a lot of these things so you're like oh i don't know yeah that's the other thing too if you get sucked out of a plane and impaled in a tree i I feel like the impact itself would kill you um it didn't but (laughs) (laughs) i feel like that's something that would happen yeah if nothing else just the rapid deceleration from falling yeah. to impaled and stopped, you think would be like, would break a human being. Or at least the tree branch, which also somehow was fine. I Or they'd bleed out. I, I don't know. That sounds pretty, it's pretty violent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which this, this, this show did not shy away from some violence or like no, gore. gore. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was digging it for sure. Yeah, I want to actually go watch it. <laughs> this is on Showtime. <laughs> yeah, uh, the first episode is on. I think it's called. Is it Pluto? I couldn't find it on Pluto, but I found it on Showtime. Yeah, the first episode's free on Pluto. The rest of it's Showtime. I'm interested now. Brandon might get his way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so speaking of, uh, this isn't necessarily directly plane related, but speaking of, this is gore related. We we're just talking about that. There's a character whose leg is mangled in the crash. Uh huh. And, you know, uh, one of the players goes and gets an axe and, like, chops off the mangled part of his leg because it's useless. And then she puts a tourniquet on his leg. It's like, I think you should have put the tourniquet on first and then cut the leg <laughs> off. Oh, that, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, it's like, st- try to minimize that bleeding as much as possible. And actually, that's a good tie-in because that same character brings me to a question I had about uh, something with the black box. From what I was reading and from what I know, it's it's very rare for them to be destroyed. They right. are meant to outperform their design. I, I found a quote that said it would take a concentrated fire beyond its design strength or an impact so high that it would be beyond what it could withstand. However, she pulls out the wires and renders it useless as a tracking device. I, I assume that's not very realistic. Not. No, it's not. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> 
normally, you know, you, you have to really get in there. You have to open them up to get to any of the, the crucial parts. And on top of that, most planes also have what's called an ELT, which is like an emergency locator transmitter that's not attached to the black box. So a plane will have an ELT and an ELT antenna separate from that entirely so that in the event of a crash, you can find it. So that's it's, it's two totally separate things, finding the wreckage and finding the black box in case that uh, they're separated during the process of the crash. Even if the black box was rendered unfindable, the ELT would still uh, transmit. Got it. I only had a couple of minor nitpicky notes. And I know like a lot of times they do these things because it looks better. It looks more interesting yeah. on, on screen. You know, right after the crash when everyone's kind of walking around, there's like electricity sparking out of the cockpit. All electrical power would be gone by this point. Like the cockpit is clearly severed mm. from the rest of the plane. There would be no electricity in there to spark. Hmm. Yeah. And at one point there's like an, ex- again, right after the, you know, everyone's getting out of the plane, right after the crash, there's an explosion. You know, we've mentioned this before. Jet fuel is not explosive. It'll catch fire, and if there's like jet fuel vapor in an enclosed area, it could like combust, but it wouldn't just like randomly explode uh, in the background for no reason. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. When it just explodes like that. But again, like I know, like it looks cool, and you know, I can understand why people do it. And but to Nicole's point earlier, I thought that they did a really good job of staging the crash scene itself, like the various pieces of debris the looms of wiring hanging out. I think the like the looms of wiring is something that gets missed a lot of times. People just like mm. will put like big panels or pieces of planes out. I thought that the the set dressing, it looked like the scene of an actual plane crash. Yeah, because we talked about that one time, how much wiring is in a plane. There's and it's so like, much wire. It's, it's like miles. Yeah, miles. miles and miles. For example, like the biggest passenger plane right now is the Airbus A380. It's a big double-decker plane. They always it's it's primarily flown like across oceans uh, between different countries. One A three eighty will have more than three hundred miles of cabling in it. Oh wow! There is so much wire and cable in a plane. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's nuts. Do we have anything else for Yellow Jackets, or are you going to talk about your movie, Gus? Oh, I'm ready to talk about mine. If y'all want, if y'all are, <laughs> I am excited yeah. to hear about yours. Okay, so I wanted to talk about seventy five hundred which is a movie that's on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that's about a, a plane that gets hijacked while it's in flight. And uh, 7500 is the transponder code that a plane will transmit in the event of a hijacking. That's why the, the movie's called 7500. There's a couple of reserved transponder codes. So if a plane ever squawks 7500, it means it's been hijacked. If it squawks 7600, it means it's had a radio, radio failure. And 7,700 is just general emergency. Like if it's going down, they'll squawk 7,700. This entire movie takes place in the cockpit of a plane. And I've got to say, I am impressed. They did their homework on this movie. Uh, This movie got so many things right. After I was done watching it, I had to look it up. And apparently they didn't build a set. They bought a plane. Oh. And they filmed in the cockpit uh, of an actual uh, plane. Wow. That's impressive because I've filmed in a plane before it's miserable yeah well apparently the way that they approached it is they didn't do blocking and lighting in a traditional sense uh-huh. the director you just told the actors to kind of you know move in the space as they saw fit not that it's a ton of space yeah but you know just like to move around the space as they saw fit you know it's very confined anyway yeah which i thought was an interesting approach super interesting yeah but yeah filming in a plane is it's so it's tough it's hot and there's cramped and it's hard to frame yeah yeah I found out also that, you know, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is uh, the main character uh, of this film. He plays the first officer of the plane. 
the captain of the plane mm-hmm. in this movie was an actual former commercial captain. And he also helped advise, like, the, he helped train Joseph Gordon-Levitt for the role and advise uh, the production on, like, proper procedures for things, which oh. I think probably ended up really helping because there were yeah. so many times I was like, man, they nailed that. So the, the flight that this movie takes place on is supposed to be flying from uh, Berlin to Paris. Uh-huh. They never say what airport they're flying out of Berlin, but I did detective work. And I figured out <laughs> that they flew out of Berlin Tegel Airport, which is now closed. Uh, Berlin Tegel had its last commercial flight November 8th, 2020. I looked it up based on the runways that they used, uh-huh. based on the taxiways that they used, <laughs> and based on the tower frequencies that they were talking on. I had to really dig around to find it. But, you know, they, they're, you know, they do their departure briefing. They say, you know, we're to taxi via Romeo, Whiskey, Bravo to 26 left. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, that's, that's what you would say. This is where you would go. They're, they say they're talking to tower frequency at 124.525, which was the Berlin Tegel tower frequency. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, they were, this, is, this all adds up. That's how I figured out what airport it was. Well, I'm impressed that you did that. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason, the reason I wanted to look it up is mm-hmm. because... Berlin has a new airport now. Like I said, Tegel closed uh, back in 2020. Berlin has now the Berlin-Brandenburg Airport. Have either of you ever heard of the Berlin-Brandenburg Airport, or is this the first time you're ever hearing about it? I haven't. Yeah, I haven't. So this airport, let me tell you about this airport. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) This airport was delayed by 10 years. What? This airport went over budget billions of euros. This was a disaster <laughs> and 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 as someone who's designed an airport in our our, our what, what, what did we stream we did like airport uh, air, sim? It was airport simulator yeah it's not easy <laughs> it's but not easy at that, all we, we weren't 10 years behind no not at all and uh we also managed to not go way over budget yeah i, th- I believe in the end their budget they ended up spending triple their budget to oh open my, this how airport. how why there were so many problems. Like my, my favorite, there are tons of stories. You, I highly recommend you look it up if you're interested in this kind of thing. But I'll tell you a couple of my favorite stories about the Berlin-Brandenburg Airport. Okay. They had a system. They were trying to work on this system where if there was a fire in the airport, like they were, they, they were trying to figure out how do we get rid of the smoke so that people can still breathe and escape. Uh-huh. And as human beings, I'm sure both of you know, smoke rises because it's hot. They had an engineer who was designing a system of fans to suck smoke down instead of going up. That no. way it would go down into like these ducts under the airport and they could like pipe it away from the airport. The problem was the guy doing this was not an engineer. He had no engineering degree. Oh, you know, eventually when they figured out that he, he couldn't do it, he just couldn't make the system work because it's impossible. It cost him. I want to say it cost him like a hundred million euros just to fix that. Why did they try and do that in the first place? Because they took his word for it. They thought he was an engineer <laughs> and he knew how to do it. Oh my God. Yeah, it was, it, it's just stuff like that. The parts of the airport were done. You know, like I said, you know, it was delayed nine or 10 years. Some parts of the airport got done on time. So they had a rail system to move passengers around the airport years before the airport was open. So in order to try to circulate air throughout the airport, they would just run the train nonstop to keep the air circulating in the airport so that it wouldn't become stagnant. The air? Right. Like, if you think about like an abandoned building, it's not good to just have like air sitting around or, you know, things unattended. So uh-huh. they would just run the train to keep the air moving in the airport. Oh. That seems... It's weird, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Berlin-Brandenburg Airport. What a disaster. It's open finally, just in time for the pandemic. (laughs) 
this episode, we're not talking about Vanderburg Airport. We're talking about 7,500. I'm sorry. It's just something I'm really interested in. So one of the weird things I thought was that, you know, when they're doing their pre-flight briefing and they're going over all the uh, ILS departure procedures and approaches, Joseph Gordon-Levitt pulls out paper charts to do all of that, which is fine. You know, their paper charts are still used. They still, I guess they're still commonly used in aviation. I just thought it was weird because he has a tablet. And most of the time on modern airliners, it's all built into the computer system. Like you can call it up on the, on the tablet uh-huh. in the cockpit. It was just weird to me that he had paper charts, but it's not wrong per se. You know, they, plenty of people still use the paper charts. At the beginning of the movie, the captain gets up and leaves because he, you know, he says he's going to go do his walk around on the plane. And we've talked about this before where, you know, one of the pilots will go and do a walk around and inspect the exterior of the plane. Yeah. But he, from the, I timed it from the moment he walks out the, 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 the door of the cockpit to the moment he walks back in, it's 60 seconds. Wow. I could not, you know, he has to go outside, go down the stairs, inspect the entire plane, like walk all the way around it, come back up the stairs and into the cockpit. He did it in 60 seconds. It's a little fast. <laughs> That's impressive. That mean, maybe he's just a fast guy. Maybe he just ran around the plane. <laughs> I really expect to play. And he did that thing where he's like trying to play it cool. And then as soon as he exits, he just sprints. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go check out the plane. Doing sp- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a, a, a slight math problem in this movie before they take off. They're trying to figure out how much fuel they have and the weight of the plane. And the person on the ground tells him that the zero fuel weight of the plane is 56.8 tons. Then during the departure briefing, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character says that the total weight is 54.8 tons, but they also had 7.2 tons of fuel, so their weight should have been 64 tons. So it's like the numbers just didn't add up. Ah. Uh. It was like, they just, they just, again, it's like a script supervisor thing. Someone just, they, maybe they changed the numbers or they typoed the numbers and just no one caught it. Yeah, it's not as bad as like mixing up the protagonist's seat number. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> But even the, even the fuel calculations are correct. You know, he says that, you know, they've got 7.2 tons of fuel, which should be enough for an extra 30 minutes beyond their flight. You know, when planes carry a little extra fuel, uh-huh. that means that they roughly had enough fuel for about a two and a half hour flight. And I looked it up. The flight from Berlin to Paris is about an hour and 50 minutes. So they even got like the fuel quantity correct. Huh. So that's why I said earlier, like sometimes movies get it right. This movie got so many things right. What were you most impressed they got right? I think the tower frequency, the fact that they, you know, they did get the tower frequency for the actual airport. The uh-huh. fact that they said, you know, we're going to taxi via Romeo, Whiskey, Bravo, like listing the taxiways that they're going to take. Like all these little tiny details that really aren't needed. Yeah. The pilots even do a departure briefing. Like the first officer asked the captain, do you want to do our departure briefing now? It's like, yes, let's go ahead and do it now. Like, and going over all of that, like. Wow, like they talk about like on missed approach, we're going to do this, you know, like they go through everything like that. They're, they're really thorough with it. Wow. And uh, there's a moment in the movie that kind of calls back to something we've talked about before, where one of the baggage handlers comes into the cockpit before they take off and says, hey, uh, all the bags are loaded, but there's two passengers missing on the plane. What do you want us to do? Do you want to wait to see if they show up or do you want us to take the bags out of the plane? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because bags are no longer allowed to go onto planes unless the passengers are on the plane as well. So, you know, the captain has to make the call. Like, he's like, all right, go ahead and pull the bags out. Yeah. We, we, Nicole, we talked about an episode because there's a, um, it's a safety, like, terrorist thing. If, if someone did, tried to put an explosive device on, like, a baggage and then didn't get on the plane, then that's. Right. It's like, it's a, it's very suspicious when that happens. I never even considered that. Mm-hmm. The reason that happened, of course, is this, this actually did happen at one point uh, where uh, some bombs were put onto planes. 
by passengers who just didn't get on the plane. So now not allowed. They have to make sure you're on the plane if your bag's there. One thing that I thought was weird, you know, they're, they're getting ready to take off. They're taxiing out to the runway. The flight attendant comes into the cockpit to ask them what kind of food they want. It's like, this is a very critical time in, in the flight. They should only be focusing on taking off and dealing with that. The flight attendant's like ringing the doorbell to come in like, hey, what do y'all want to eat? <laughs> y'all hungry? Yeah. It's like, no, no, that you should, you should wait until you should wait a little bit. Or instead of barging in and ringing the door, like uh-huh. call them on the phone, you know? And again, I know why they do it. They're establishing that there's a camera so that the pilots can see who's outside the door and they can establish that the door's locked and that the pilots have to hit a button to unlock the door. Like there's motivation for it yeah. story-wise, but it just like, it doesn't make sense realism-wise. Gotcha. And again, I'm going to get real nitpicky here. When they're taking off, you know, they're speeding down the runway. They're increasing the throttle. They're increasing their speed. You know, the, they call out, you know, 100 knots, go, rotate. They should have called out V1 instead of go. That's, you know, that's the designation. When you hit V1 and then you rotate. Uh, it's just weird that they said go. Maybe it's a European airline thing. I don't know. Because like I said, they were in Europe. Or maybe it's just so people understand to say <laughs> saying go. Yeah, go. I, I could see that. But they also have like a, so much other jargon that they talk about. It was just weird to me. I also thought it was weird at one point. The cap, you know, when they, right when they take off, they say there's a lot of turbulence. The captain, asked, you know, kids on the intercom and asks the passengers to stay seated during the climb due to turbulence. But at this point, like they've just taken off, like the seatbelt sign's still on, like no one's getting up, like nobody gets up mm. until the seatbelt sign goes off. I just thought it was, oh, it yeah. was weird that he's saying like, hey, there's turbulence, stay seated. Like everyone stays seated until the seatbelt sign goes off typically. Yeah, that's true. And when the, when the hijackers storm the cockpit uh, in this movie, there's a scene where, you know, the cockpit door gets open because one of the flight attendants is, is going in and they just kind of rush into the cockpit at that time. I believe that law has been changed now. It used to be in the United States post September 11th, whenever the cockpit door gets opened nowadays, uh, the flight attendants have to block the passage up there. They get uh, like a cart and they'll block it so nobody can rush into the cockpit. And there's always a flight attendant facing out, look, watching the passengers to make sure nobody's doing anything suspicious. Hmm. And that was not a rule in Europe until recently. They only passed that here fairly recently. So it's, it may seem like a, like a, like a gaff, but it could be that it wasn't yet a law by the time this movie came out. Okay. So if you ever see, if you're ever on a flight and you see the flight attendants pulling out the cart and blocking the entrance to the cockpit, that's why it means they're good. They're about to open the door and they're getting ready to do that. It's a really non-threatening way to create a barrier. Yeah. <laughs> Who wants snacks? Also yeah. stay away. Also, yeah, back <laughs> off. <laughs> they can like pick up the snacks and throw them at anybody who's acting up. I mean, that just encourage people to act up. Yeah, but what if it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. But it's like, what if you get, like, a salt from a peanut in your eye? You're like, oh, <laughs> like, it really stings. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. Another weird thing I thought is that I felt like in this movie, the passengers were a little too docile. Like, they were a little too resigned to the hijacking. I feel like and at one point, even, you know, the, the cockpit crew gets on the intercom and asks the passengers to start fighting back. But they don't really, like, everyone's just, just like, kind of going along with it. How many people are on the flight so they don't ever say but it's an airbus a319 that they're flying they actually actually even say it in the uh, in the movie uh-huh. so that's i mean it's not a huge plane it's roughly the size of a 737 well i guess the a320 is the size of a 737 the a319 is a little smaller it can typically carry somewhere between 120 to 150 people i think so it's a decent number of people that's a lot of people yeah and there's only you see in the movie there's only four hijackers and they're armed with uh, pieces of glass. They make their knives out of broken glass. 
So it's like you, you you would think that 150 people could overpower them, but I could I could understand like you don't want to personally get hurt. Yeah, but in the trailer, doesn't he like at some point scream like try take, take yeah matters in your own hand? Like I feel like the pilot telling you to do that, you'd be like, all right, let's do it. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah. Then one of the weird mistakes that I don't know why they, they they get this right early in the movie. Then halfway through the movie, they start messing it up and then they keep messing it up for the rest of the movie. And I don't know what, what happened. You know, they're going to make an emergency stop in Hanover air traffic control at Joseph Gordon Levitt keep saying runway two seven R instead of saying two seven, right? Oh, when you're giving runway designations, L is left. R is right. C is center. They would never say two seven R. They would always say two seven, right? Okay. It's just weird. I don't think, a pilot or an air traffic controller would ever say 27R. Just really weird to hear, uh, considering everything else that they got right in yeah. the film. And when they're taking off, they even say they're taking off from 26 left. So that's why like, they got it right earlier. Then all of a sudden they started getting it wrong halfway through the movie. I wonder if that was like an actor thing. Oh, uh, maybe. And it like didn't get caught, you know? Yeah, I guess in the earlier scene, the captain was still there. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> um, and he wasn't there later uh, for some reason. Then also he gets when they when you know when they're going to make their mercy landing in Hanover you know Joseph Gordon Levitt's in the cockpit the 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 hijackers are are outside of the cockpit and he makes an announcement to the cabin saying we're going to make an emergency landing in Hanover in twenty minutes like I thought why would he tell the hijackers what he's doing <laughs> why would he say that you know you're going to be landing and how long it's going to take yeah they wouldn't unless they were saying hey we're gonna like if you don't let us land. We're going to run out of fuel, which happened right. one time, right? Yeah. That's pretty much it. Everything else goes pretty well. There were, you know, when they go into land in Hanover, there are some weird things. Like he mentions the that the weather's too bad to use autopilot. And then you can hear the weather conditions being read. And the winds are really strong. I don't know. I've never flown a plane with autopilot. So I don't know if, if that's actual thing. But, you know, he has to he has to fly the plane manually because the weather's too bad. But I, w- I would think the autopilot would be able to account for that. Mm. And I think at one point also, they start messing with the throttle before disengaging the autopilot. So presumably the auto throttle would still be on and they're moving it manually. I guess that would just deactivate the auto throttle, presumably. I don't know. It was just like a weird sequence where things seemed slightly out of order for just a second. And then mm-hmm. it all was fine. So, but overall, they nailed it. They did such a great job of capturing you know what it's like to to do that, and they got a lot of the terminology correct. And I was I was really impressed with that with that movie. Well, good. I want to I want to watch both these things now. <laughs> I kind of want to watch that movie now. It's only like ninety minutes long. It's not super long, and I think it's interesting, if nothing else, from a filmmaking's perspective, to watch a movie that they filmed entirely in the cockpit of a real plane. Yeah, that's crazy. It's on Prime, Amazon Prime. Yeah, if you've got Amazon Prime, you can watch it on Prime Video. It came out just a couple of years ago. I think it came out in twenty nineteen. So it's still a fairly recent movie. I'm going to add that to my list. <laughs> you know what people listening should add to their list? What's that, Chris? They should add Nicole's podcast. Oh, I thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's Insidious Inspirations, and they can find it on any podcast platform, I presume? Yep, any podcast platform. And it airs every Tuesday, and it's a weekly production? That is right. Specifically, if you're just like, which one should I check out? Uh, you should listen to the one with me and Gus. Which I, I think we're actually we might be posting that on our channel so that people can check it out because me it's us talking about the inspiration behind the Gremlins and Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet, but we also talk about like the real life incidents that inspired it. Yeah, and I think it, it's interesting, you know, because like that's that's kind of also 
airplane lore, like gremlins or things not mm-hmm. acting right. And, you know, we talked about uh, an incident a couple of weeks ago where like a plane had counterfeit parts. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, the gremlins in the machine, like things aren't working quite right. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, you know, real gremlins aren't scary little creatures. It's like just things that are that are w- aren't working as you expect. That's what you think. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I had a lot of fun talking about all this stuff. I'm, I'm going to go watch more Yellow Jackets. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Same. I'm so excited to watch more of that show. <laughs> you also kind of undersold like the rest of the, the story where it's like the aftermath of this 25 years later. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the people who do survive and, you know, coming to grips with with what happened. It's a really, really interesting story, I think. Yeah, I'm actually not finished all of it yet, but so far it has been I mean, I've watched the first episode twice in one day. I, <laughs> it was really <laughs> captivating. Yeah, it's absolutely great. So go listen to Insidious Inspirations, uh, watch some of these films, <laughs> and then uh, and continue to listen to Black Box Down. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, we'll be back again real soon. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this special episode of Insidious Inspirations. As a reminder, this was recorded with... As a reminder, this was recorded with Black Box Down, Rooster Teeth's Aviation Disaster Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I highly encourage you to go check it out. Thanks for listening. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories, if you're brave enough. (laughs) 